Well, good morning, good morning, everybody. This is the 3CR Gardening Show. We're having um, extreme technical difficulties in this studio at the moment, so apologies for that and apologies for going to air so late. Stephen and I came in. Stephen's um, hosting this morning, actually, and we, we got in the studio and it was completely dead. Yes. Well, there you go. So that that was all very interesting. So uh, we do have, um, hopefully we have Clive Larkman um, on Zoom with us. Can you hear me now, Clive? He can hear me, but I can't, can't hear, hear him. him. Yes. So we will try and get that sorted out. Um, yeah, as I said, we are having rather extreme technical difficulties at the moment. Um, we're trying to um, get Millie Ross in the Zoom with us as well. But um, Stephen, I think it might just end up being um, me and yeah. you this morning. <laughs> the way things are going, it's not sounding particularly good, AB. It's, it's not sounding And good. hopefully, because the station's been down for some little time, there are people who are still patiently waiting for us to come on board and we've actually got an audience. That yes, would be nice. That, that's, it's, it's a little bit crazy at the moment, so I can hear phones uh, ringing in yeah. the background <laughs> and all sorts of things going oh, on. dear. So um, uh, we do have tech support coming into the studio. Yes. So hopefully um, here will arrive and Clive hopefully we will get you on the air soon so if you could just hang in there I know that you can hear me um got no idea why I can't hear you and uh yeah that's that's all a bit frustrating so um Stephen <laughs> luckily you have brought in I've got lots of plants <laughs> to talk about which which we will put up on um the Facebook page and so <laughs> forth after the program Liz will kindly put all my images up later on anything we talk about the way things are going this morning it might be everything yes <laughs> yes exactly well be everything yeah. um so hopefully people are in fact listening um, I do have one, um, I think, fairly important um, announcement to make, uh, and that is uh, about the Yay Open Gardens um, weekend, which is coming up. So I might run through the details on that if people are interested. Uh, they're still going ahead with um, you know, a COVID plan in place. Uh, it's the 6th and 7th of November. Uh, and it's around the township of Yay. Uh, the gardens will be open from 10am to 5pm, and it's $5 per garden, or you can get a two-day pass for all the gardens for $35. It's being run by the Yay Rotary Club, um, and if you go on to their website, which is yayrotary.org.au, you can get maps and descriptions on their website. So if you're interested in a weekend away, those of you, well, we're hoping that Melbourne won't be in lockdown by then, so hopefully we'll all be able to get out and about uh, and go and visit some lovely gardens around the Yay area, which would be really, really nice. So uh, I was meant to be up there for doing a lecture, but at this stage, their limits on their numbers in a hall are too small for me to go. So. I won't be there, but uh, the gardens will, and I think we're all champing at the bit to get out and have a look at some gardens at the moment. So, um, yeah, so yay, open gardens, seven, uh, 6th and 7th of November from 10am to 5pm, $5 a garden, $35 for a two-day pass for all the gardens, so you could perhaps book in somewhere over there and stay, and um, uh, all of the information is on the yayrotary.org.au um website so you can get maps and descriptions of the gardens in that way so there you go um now if um if we get clive and millie on board actually 
past the stage where we can just see their picture on the screen. Uh, we will ask Clive about an upcoming event too, which is also November, which is the uh, Yarra Valley Rare Plant Fair. So that's coming up in November. All things being equal, we'll get him on board so that he can explain it all to us at some point. Hmm? We're not yeah, going go, to it. Go, go on, Stephen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so anyhow, um, we have um, uh, high spring on top of us at the moment. So uh, I bought in a whole pile of plants, so we might as well start with some of those while we're still getting ourselves organised with, our, um, with our technology, which is giving us uh, a real problem this morning. And I do love spring, and I guess one of my favourite plants of spring would have to be the North American dogwoods. Uh, although I like the Chinese ones as well. Um, and areas like Mount Macedon, Bright, uh, the, uh, the Nongs are all areas where dogwoods grow particularly well. And they're the sort of areas one should go to if you want to see them in full bloom. I actually hold the National, Reg uh, National Collection of Dogwoods, or Cornus as their botanical no name is, uh, for Plant Trust. And there's something like 40-something species and cultivars in my collection. And uh, many of them are coming out to flower at the moment. And this morning I bought in a specimen of Cornus Florida rubra, the classical pink dogwood from North America. And the dogwoods are so well loved in the Northern Hemisphere that, uh, in fact, they're uh, the floral emblems of a couple of parts of North America. British Columbia has the dogwood as its floral emblem, uh, as does Virginia. So um, they're a beautiful plant, small tree. They can be grown in Melbourne gardens, but you do have to shelter them from the hot winds, keep them out of the hot afternoon sun. So a sheltered spot in the garden with moisture-retentive, um, humus-rich soils. Um, and if you do all those things, they should grow. And the thing I love about dogwoods is that they've got such longevity in their flowers because uh, the actual flower is the little beady bit in the middle. The big petally bits, which can be white or pink or even cream, depending on which dogwood you buy, um, are actually floral bracts. So they're actually modified leaves. And so they're firmer and harder than the average petal. And so if you get inclement weather in the spring, then your dogwoods will in fact uh, keep going, whereas your flowering cherries and your prunuses and your crab apples and things, the wind will blow all their petals off and you'll have nothing there for another 12 months. So the dogwoods are a great group of plants. They also do autumnal colour very well and they have a lovely tiered layered effect to them so that even when they're bare in the winter, their winter framework is really attractive. So the cornices, if you get a chance to go out to the hills or to the northeast, go and have a look at them. Uh, they're used as a street tree in Mount Beauty, so that would be a lovely spot to go to to have a look at dogwoods at the moment. And I believe they're out in flower up that way. So what a wonderful group of trees. So there you go. You, you know what's really fantastic, Stephen? What? Is that you can just keep talking and talking <laughs> and talking. Yeah, well, I'm going to keep going. I'm assuming we're being listened to. So... Well, well, Emma, Emma came in to say that we weren't, but then Chloe is texting me to say that we can. So maybe Chloe's listening to us. Maybe we're just... We've got just right, Chloe. All right, Chloe, to... I'm going to teach you all, all about dogwoods, <laughs> I reckon. Um, so, um, yes, yeah, so the only thing I would say on the negative about them, apart from the fact that they're not always that easy to find the right posse for in a garden, is that certain varieties of dogwoods now have a disease issue, which you should be aware of. Uh, there's a disease called Cornus anthracnose, which is a fungal disease, and it weirdly affects only the North American dogwoods. Uh, so the Chinese and Japanese dogwoods don't seem to get anthracnose. 
and it leaves dead necrotic patches in the leaves. Doesn't always, it doesn't always have a huge impact on the tree as far as its vigour is concerned, although it'll be worse some years than others. Um, but um, it does have an impact on the attractiveness of the tree, unfortunately. Um, it can be controlled. Um, liming the trees will help. Uh, but if you really want to control anthracnose on your Cornus florida or your Cornus nuttali, then... Um, you may have to forego having a life because you'll need to spray with a fungicide at leaf bud burst and then spray fortnightly thereafter if you're going to control anthracnose completely. Uh, I don't spray for it and I get anthracnose on my Cornus Florida varieties. Um, it annoys me a bit, but they flower beautifully and they're still lovely trees and they're looking fantastic in the nursery at the moment. So dogwoods or cornices. Oh, by the way, the common name has potentially several... Uh, derivations, nobody's quite sure. One of them is that they used to use the bark of one of the shrubby dogwoods to make a wash for mangy dogs. So there's a romantic common name for you if there ever was one. Um, also, some of them were used as kindling. And apparently in uh, old Anglo-Saxon, kindling was actually called, uh, or clusters of kindling were called dogs. So it may have something to do with that as well. So... Um, Unfortunately, the common name is not particularly romantic, but the cornices are a beautiful, beautiful group of plants and definitely worthwhile growing if you've got the spot for them. Um, and in fact, you could have a nice grove of them if you've got a garden where they'd suit. Another little tree that's flowering at this time of the year that you very rarely see uh, around for sale, nor in people's gardens, occasionally in sort of botanical collections, uh, you'll probably find this growing in a couple of the Gardens that are open to the public up in the Dandenongs, like the Mount Dandenong Botanic Gardens, which used to be the Rhododendron Gardens, or in fact probably Periander Gardens as well, uh, <clears throat> and maybe even the Tyndale Gardens, is the um, Carolina Snowbell tree. Now, Carolina Snowbell is Halesia monticola, and it's a rather rangy small tree or large shrub small tree with uh, uh, sort of archy branches that go out in all sorts of different directions. So it's a bit ungainly as far as the plant is concerned. But all the branches are festooned with tiny white flowers, little tiny white bells, uh, all along the bare branches in the late winter into the early spring. Uh, it also has quite decorative seed pods, which look quite nice on the tree later in the season. And the autumn foliage is a soft, buttery yellow. So Halesia, like the dogwoods, comes from areas where it's got cool conditions. Um, so again you'd need to have a coolish aspect for it if you're going to grow it well so um, why have we got a picture of a rhodo hypoxis <laughs> I'm just uh, holding my phone up to uh, to show Stephen a, a photo that I've got of a, a rhodo hypoxis a, thank you Stephen because I bought that from you a few years ago and of course completely forgot about yeah. it and in the shade house the other day, there were all these little things coming up, and I was like, "What, what on earth, earth are that? these yes. little things?" Labels completely gone, and I, I knew there was do. only one person I could have <laughs> got it from, and that was you. Yeah, well, Rhodohypoxis are is a small genus. I think there's only two or three species of it, and it has a little rhizome under it. It's not strictly a bulb, although it's classed with bulbs. Uh, it's summer. It's sort of spring summer growing, uh, and. Most of the species come from Swaziland in the centre of South Africa um, and grow up in the hills where they get summer rainfall. Uh, so it's a summer rainfall-oriented rhizominous plant with little tiny flowers on it. it. only grows 
you know, probably about 15 to 20 centimetres tall, uh, and it comes in white through shades of pink to a dark carmine colour. They make great pot plants. They flower for ages and ages. They'll outdo any daffodil or tulip you could possibly grow. And um, they're a charming little plant. The they're Rodeo really pots. cute. They really, are really very cute. Sweet and I've thing. divided them because they were getting super cramped in their yeah. little pot. I, I gather that they don't mind being a little bit cramped, but no, I've they divided don't. them now. And, yeah, yeah. yeah so. And they look fabulous if you put them into a sort of a shallow terracotta dish or something like that to sit up on the barbecue table or whatever. Um, because they're so short you need and, and comparatively small in flower, you do need a little bit of a quantity of it to make an impact. But, yeah, if you've got a nice drift of it in a big pot, can look fabulous. Which is what I do now. Yeah. And I can attest to the fact that they're extremely tough. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because I've been yeah. ignoring due, them for two years. I was going to say, due to neglect on your <laughs> exactly, behalf, I exactly. can tell. Now, oh. I do want to say that people are sending some love through the text line. Oh, good. Um, so we are being People can hear to... you talking yeah. about the dogwoods and, um, yeah, very, various people. So thanks so much for the te text messages. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm and glad we'd to hear. like some questions if anybody's got any. If they can get the text messages through, they can ask us a question. Yes. Can't send a photo, though. Well, you no. can, but we won't see it. <laughs> yeah, so that's pointless. Yeah. But you could ask us a question which we would love to get and we would love to answer. Um, and at this stage, I think we're still struggling with our Zoom link. So Yeah, yeah, we are. Unfortunately, Clive, poor Clive and, and Millie are, are sitting there waiting to chat to us and uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully getting them on air and, and hearing about yeah. what they've been up to and um, what's going on in their gardens. Um, and, yes, we need Clive on board to tell us about the plant fair coming up oh, in November yes. as well. Um, and Clive, if you if we don't get you through, could you text us all the details <laughs> through again? Uh, you might be able to do that at least, and we can then talk about it. Oh, uh, but having been to one of Clive's fairs last last year, was it last year? I don't know anymore. So long ago now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With all of these lockdowns and shutdowns, and God knows what else we've been through, it's really hard to know. But I went to the first inaugural autumn one. Um, last autumn, I think. Uh, and it was fabulous fun. I mean, it's a great site. Everybody enjoys themselves. It was meant to be in October. It's now been moved to November and uh, uh, COVID restrictions allowing it should go ahead. And it's a great way to meet growers, um, to talk to them about how to look after your plants, to buy interesting plants that you don't often see around the nursery trade. I mean, all in all, it's a fabulous weekend. So uh, we will talk about that a little bit later on, either with Clive Direct, um, uh, or uh, we will get the details in and we'll let you know all about it. Yeah, that's. But, I think it's on uh, November 20th and 21st. That does ring a bell. Yeah, and it's at the same place. A lot of people may have gone to the Herb and Chili Festival, oh, yes. which is a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, it's at the same place. And honestly, Clive and I do an incredible job organising all the stalls. Um, oh. There's always really good food to eat. Uh, it's a lot of fun. They normally have boutique beers and local wines as well. Yeah, uh, and they have a range of speakers and things going on. I know Jane Edmondson is going to be the the key person at the event, uh, and also Vasily is going to be there. So there'll be you know some interesting high profile uh, garden gurus on site to talk to you about things. Um, and of course, if you go into the Yarra Valley Rare Plant Fair website, you can pick up all that detail through their website as well, I'm sure. So I hope, Clive, if you're listening to me, I haven't said anything incorrect, uh, but I'm sure you'll correct me later if needs be. Um, now, I've got another tree I'd like to talk about, seeing as I can just keep talking, <laughs> just talking keep, and talking. Exactly, yeah. Now, this tree has a little bit of a history. It's uh, cute. It's a crab apple, mm -hmm. uh, but it's actually, well, in a sense, it's actually a crab apple apple hybrid. 
and it has a strong personal history for me. Uh, it's a variety of crabapple called Pioneer Rose, and it was originally discovered somewhere up in um, the Myrtleford area on an apple farm that belonged to an elderly lady friend of mine, um, uh, Helen Serple. And Helen passed away oh, about two or three years ago. Um, she was a great gardener. She had a lovely garden up in Myrtleford that was often, often open for the open garden scheme. Um, and it was on her son's property that this seedling had come up. Now, he had an apple orchard. He had some crab apples growing in his garden. And it's obviously a cross between the two. Uh, Helen called it Pioneer Rose and her idea was that eventually that it was going to be released commercially and then she could get royalties from it that she'd put back into the Myrtleford Garden Club, which was the plan. But that never sort of happened. And I saw the tree growing in Helen's garden. She'd grafted her own trees of it onto a dwarfing understock. Um, and it's charming. It has coppery burgundy foliage in the spring, tends to go greenish by midsummer, has very good autumn foliage. It has dark magenta-y coloured um, crabapple flowers on it and its fruit is really big. It's about halfway between a crabapple and a commercial apple, so I'd say it's bigger than a golf ball uh, and it's a dark burgundy red fruit and it has quite dark coloured flesh. And if you can eat a really tart apple, you could actually eat one of these off the tree. Uh, it also makes very good stewed fruit that stews up nice and pink. So it looks Lovely. fantastic. Um, and so Pioneer Rose is a really pretty tree. So what happened was I got some budwood from her and I sent it off to one of my wholesale propagators because uh, I'm not terribly good at budding and grafting, I have to say. It's a dreadful admission to make over air. But um, uh, I sent it off to one of my growers and he kindly budded it up. He now has it permanently on his list for sale uh, as Malus Pioneer Rose. Uh, and so I had quite a lot to do with getting it out there into the um, public arena. And I've got a nice tree of it in the garden at home that is not on a dwarfing rootstock and it's quite vigorous tends to be a bit biennial in its flowering and its fruiting, but then a lot of fruit trees do that. Uh, and of course the parrots and things clean up most of the fruit before I get to it anyway. But it gives me lots of spring blossom and really attractive foliage right from spring till autumn. So that maleus pioneer rose, direct to you from the Myrtleford town. So All right, there you go. Stephen, I'm actually going to try something now. Mm -hmm. um, so Clive, could you just say g'day to us? And I'm just going to hold the mic up. Uh, nope, it's not even coming through oh, the damn. computer. That's uh, totally weird. Yes. Not sure what's going on. Everything's unmuted. It's um, really quite bizarre, isn't it? Are you it? sure that Clive and uh, Millie are unmuted from their end? <laughs> yeah, you got. Yeah, they're, they're both nodding <laughs> yeah, furiously. Good, they're good, they're good. unmuted. Uh, so yes, because I've done that, <laughs> and we're unmuted from here. So oh, I just heard Millie laughing. Hello, oh. hello, Millie. We've got you. Oh. Ah, maybe Clive, you're in the in the. Uh... The, the palatial surrounds of the Yarra Valley, perhaps the signal doesn't get over the hill. <laughs> maybe. Maybe that's right. Well, we've uh, got so Millie on board, so welcome, Millie. Yeah, so... I've been, I've been quietly muting myself so I don't disrupt what's going on in case you hear my, my rummaging in the background. But, um, <laughs> I think you, I think you were going to go and build a kitchen bench while Stephen was talking. Is that... <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> Yeah, it's often what you do on a Sunday morning, isn't it? Listen to 3CR and tinker around doing whatever it is that you're doing. But um, well done, you two. I'm sorry for the, the frantic moments. Uh, it's um, 
it's always frantic anyway, getting into the studio and getting everyone sat down and getting the machine on, but doing it in these new ways is uh, is three times as stressful. So and great it's to, even to worse. I can't see you, Stephen. I can see the lovely AB there. Yeah, well, it's even worse when your machinery is not working when you get into the studio, <laughs> I have to say. But, um, yeah, I mean, what a, I mean, what a morning. I'm calling in from central Victoria, obviously. So crisp, clean, gorgeous spring air, sunny, sunny, sunny skies and... Um, the word verdant doesn't describe this spring, does it, with all the, the winter rains we've had. It's been such an incredible winter up here. And actually, you know, because we're on such a heavy black basalt soil that soaks it up like a sponge, the, the, the ground actually feels like a pudding at the moment. It's um, You sort of walk along and you can hear the air sort of as your pressure pops, you know, pushing a bit of air out of the ground. It's quite, quite extraordinary. But it has been... Um, and not for those of you who are locked down, obviously that's so difficult still in Melbourne, but it has been an incredibly beautiful winter and spring. Um, I often say to people, I know I know people are, are really just desperate to get out and, and walk in some of the places that they like to most years. And it's two years now that people have really missed out, perhaps on going looking for the orchids they love or enjoying a bit of bush, but um, that that stuff's been around a really long time and it's there waiting for you when when all is revealed and people can, can get out and enjoy some of those natural spaces again. But, um, yeah, gosh, lucky to be gardeners, huh? Yeah, and what's happening in your garden, Millie? Oh, I could tell Lots. you. Look, I'm actually sitting at my house, which some people might know I've been working on my – I call it a cubby house um, because I have been working on rebuilding my little <coughs> – for nearly two years now um, and really starting to put the garden back into shape because it's such a it's only about an eight by eight meter garden um, and so it's quite small and obviously in a renovation capacity you just you trash your own things so just starting to put some things back in the ground which you know again it's such a good year for doing that I hope um, they're predicting a, is it La Nina I never yes. know where La Nina. I'm meant to put yes. accents. Cool and so cool just, and rainy. Yeah, so we yeah, won't have cool a cool and rainy summer again. Yeah. Um, no sweet corn, no tomatoes. Tomatoes, <laughs> but great for planting and, and establishing gardens. So um so just starting to get some things back in the ground, which is incredibly exciting. Actually, I think my uh, sweet corn have already got the message because I sowed them a month ago and one has popped its head up. It's like the other side, no, 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 El Nino coming, baby, not not, not, get, not getting into it. I haven't even put mine in yet. Um, I've actually got a bed that I was going to designate for the um, uh, sweet corn this year and so I dug all of the Jerusalem artichokes out of it, I thought. Oh, yes. <laughs> and we had to go through the bed again this week and dig out a whole pile more because there was quite a lot coming up. I think we're slowly getting on top of them. I mean, I love them as a vegetable as long as you don't mind being antisocial when you eat them. Um, but they are so difficult to get rid of once you've sort of allocated a bed to them. Uh, but we decided they needed to shift to right at one end of the vegetable garden. Uh, so they were out of the way a bit. So I've started a new bed, but now we're trying to clean out the old bed and get it ready for the corn. So we've been through the bed twice now. I'm going to leave it for another week or two and see if anything else pops up. Um, and then I'm going to try and use it for sweet corn. But I don't think I'll be putting in the sweet corn till well into November. It's just too, yeah, I'm the, the ground's same too wet. Where, where we are, there's just, just no point. But... The, uh, Jerusalem artichokes, I have seen them contained quite effectively by just sinking a big plastic pot in the ground because, yeah. you know, it's something that I've really noticed about them. 
is that when you're when you're digging them up, is they tend to form quite vertically yeah. underneath the clump. Like they're not like other plants that want to spread horizontally. You know, they're doing that. So I have seen, Stephen, actually some quite effective containment by even taking the bottom out of a pot, but just sort of trying to keep them in in a, you know, maybe a 14 or even bigger inch pot in the ground um, work as a bit of a barrier. The well, other thing I, I thought the bed you, was you know, doing the best that. thing I've ever done with Jerusalem artichokes? What's that? Make ice cream. Ooh. What? So years ago, we were in Hobart and we went to, you know, I never go to, I can't afford to go to fancy restaurants for the whole meal, but I find if you sneak in just for dessert, you get the best, the best anyway. And um, had this incredible uh, Jerusalem artichoke ice cream. So I gave it a go. You basically poach them in the cream mm. that you're going to make um, make the ice cream out of, All and right. then you sieve the cooked artichokes and the cream so that what's actually going into the ice cream is very, um, you know, it's a really pureed form and it's just lightly savoury and lightly sweet and it was absolutely delicious. So there you go, Stephen. Oh, well, there you go. Next There's... task for you. I'll see if I can dig up my recipe, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I actually think I made it up. But it was just, a you know, just poaching the actual Jerusalem artichokes in the cream that you make the ice cream out of. It was it was to die for. Well, that sounds like a good move because uh, I do end up with quite a lot. And I have to say, my plan was that the whole bed was going to be for Jerusalem artichokes anyway. It's only that I needed to shift the bed uh, that I'm now in trouble with it uh, because it did stay within the bed, but it took over the whole bed eventually. Yeah, they are such a. I mean, they're such a great flower too, and such a late summer bloomer when you really you really need that kind of other things are sort of fading out because it's getting very hot yeah. they they sort of come into their own and um fantastic tall structure in a, in a new garden too oh yes such, yes. A, such an amazing plant yeah they? and i have to say if anybody wants some tubers i mean they're starting to shoot now but i've got a bucket load of tubers up at the nursery if anybody's not in lockdown and not too far away from mount macedon and they'd like to come in and get a handful of tubers to start themselves off if they haven't got any jerusalem i think we've got clive oh look out i hear i hear, Yay, I hear a voice. well done clive how did that happen I can never understand all the different USB ports. <laughs> I put a new printer in on Friday and changed the USB ports for the camera. Aha, uh-huh. so operator error. Uh, it happens. Why what? can you have four USB ports that all look identical but perform differently? Look, I, I, I want to say welcome. I would like to officially welcome Clive Larkman from Larkman Nurseries and Millie Ross from ABC Gardening Australia. Good morning and welcome to the 3CR Gardening Show, guys. Deary me, what a morning it has been. Much easier to drive in. Yes, it is much easier to drive in, Clive. Um, All right. Seeing as we've got Clive on board, why don't we get Clive to run through um, what's happening up at the plant fair? Why don't you give us the, all the gory details so that people can get organised and ready to go? All right, Steve. The, the, as you know, the plant fair has been postponed from next weekend till the third weekend in November, which coincidentally is the first weekend we had it the very first year we ran it. Oh, Hopefully, we're hoping to be all 80% vaccinated by then and all open and ready and running, so it should be good. Good. We've got our same 40 or so really good stall holders, and I think we've got you coming out, haven't we, Steve? Well, you, know, you're, you come out in autumn, don't you? Yeah, yes. I, I'm, I'm an autumn joy. You're an autumn person where all the colours falling off you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's when all the leaves drop. I get there. <laughs> so... Yes, so that's really good. So what, in fact, are all of the 
serious details, the dates, the times, the yeah, fees it's to Saturday get in. the 20th and Sunday the 21st of November. Yep. It's 125 Quail, it's Q-U-A-Y-L-E Road, Wandon. Yep. 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Yep. You can go to the Yarra Valley website, which is, you know, the www.yarravalleyplantfair.com.au. Good. Um, I suspect that we'll have to be double vaccinated to get in. I suspect the government will make that compulsory. So if you're planning to come and you're not vaccinated, it'd be a good time to start. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not up one for mandating these things, but if I want to run my event, I'll probably have to do it. So Yeah, yeah that's fair enough. That's, what, that's the way the world is at the moment. And we've got Jane Emerson there and we've got Vasily there and we've got some, we're hoping to get David from Jindavik. David Muscat oh, yes, will yeah. be launching his new book he's just released. Ah, We're yes, hoping. I've seen something on the social media side of things about David's book, so that would be good. He, he did say he'll be there to sign copies and talk to people. Yeah. Um, because it's because of the way the year's been, we've got a few storeholders that normally can't come to us because they clash with other events, so they'll be there. Oh, good. We've got Philip Vaughan coming all the way down from the Grampians with his amazing collection of native plants, which oh, yes. is really nice. That'll get a few people out there because his stuff is... That'll definitely get ama- me there. Yeah, his stuff is fantastic. We've got one of my favourite guys, which is um, one of the new stigs, and Ruben, and he's coming with his species roses, which I always think are amazing. They're mm. not as... Showy is the, the, the hybrids, but they're actually quite unusual. Yeah, I, I actually have a great soft spot for some of the species roses and the uh, and their ilk. I think they're wonderful plants. Always, I think sometimes they're, they're preferable as garden plants. They can often do other jobs so, as well as being a rose, where so many roses we seem to be in be a rose really well. Um, they can't be a loop. or a or a fence or a you know or a winter feature. So I think some of the species as such. Interesting plants in their own right. They're not just roses. We, we have one in our stock beds that I bought many, many, many years ago. It's a willow-leaved rose. And it's a weird plant. I've never seen a flower. It's not the willow-leaved rose, but they did identify it as a, as a species rose. And it's, it's gone to about a, a two-metre-round ball and just stayed there ever since. Goodness Full me. of green foliage and not deciduous. Mm. Yeah. And also, yeah, often you... Don't have to prune them. They don't even like to be pruned. Some of the species. I mean, obviously, each one is their own. But yeah, there's so much, so much fun to be had in species roses, particularly if you've got a bit of space. And also, we're trying to get some of those other interesting things. Like we had the carnival homewares with some amazing cushions and outdoor blankets and towels and things, which are really pretty. My wife loves them. I find them a bit. Oh, hum. But I, but I am Come on. Yeah, plus, you don't have taste, Clive. Come on. I mean, <laughs> let's face it. You do not need to say that. I get that all day, every day. You don't need to remind I don't me. To, I don't mean to, think you meant to say your product coming to the fair is ho-hum either. But as yeah, people say, exactly. ho-hum is, is not an official statement. Their product's the fantastic. I'm just not one in for furniture. <laughs> you, 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 you're a plant obsessed to actually pay attention to any of those other things, yeah. I find. It's yeah. like, you know, some people are really interested in that. We're really interested in plants. We all have the things that we can actually discern the difference between. Yes, yes. <laughs> I have to say, Clive... Um... So that's part of the fun of the plant fair, to try and get a lot of our wholesale and growers who don't normally talk to the public to come and talk about what's passionate to them because... Yeah. We're all passionate about something, and it's interesting. I don't know how much you know about what we now do. We actually do the quarantining for plant importers, mm-hmm. and some of these guys are just crazy passionate about their plants. And 
we have plants that are selling for four or five thousand dollars a plant Goodness just to me. mad crazy collectors it's really getting out there, up there, isn't there? There was a beautiful moment on Gardening Australia a few weeks ago where Josh is touring this incredible collection of indoor plants in Perth and and um, Bessie, the lady whose collection it was, has a little glass house and, you know, he sort of says, oh, this, this must be special if they're in this tiny little protection. He says, yes, it's a it's a leaf cutting that I paid. I think, yeah, it was somewhere up there, five two and a half thousand dollars yeah. or something for this, for a leaf cutting mm. of... Something that's variegated and not very strong or vigorous anyway. And it's like, I often think, like, so many of us talk about what a good plant is and as gardeners or people advising people. $5,000 for something that barely wants to live. I just... Uh, it's <laughs> what it is. It, it's it's hard to explain. But if I told you that they were collecting matchbox cars, and there's a really rare 1925 German matchbox car, they'll yep. pay a hundred thousand for it because that's what they collect, and they're passionate yep. about it. Yeah. And it's the rarity. And we have we one girl that brings in Hoyas and various Aroids every year. And two years ago, she bought in one. It came out of quarantine on the Friday. It sold for four and a half thousand dollars a week later on, on eBay. Goodness I know uh, I know some collectors, some fantastic. They've been on the program a couple of times. They're out of Cairns. I'm sure you probably know them too. The Arden, Arden, Chris and, and Arden. Yeah. And um, they own a plant in Florida that they've never met. <laughs> they've, Goodness <laughs> me. They've, they've had a few years of it. Every now and then they sell some cuttings to kind of pay for its upkeep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What happens is we're finding at long last, a lot of the plant in the, the Plant collectors are starting to understand to do it legally. And instead of smuggling stuff in, they're coming in. And there's only about two or three of us around the country that do this, this importing for other people. And like I've got two lots of 7,000 succulents sitting in my population, in my quarantine tunnel at the moment. But what, what's happening is that they're, they're seeing the value of doing it legally. And it's fascinating what they're bringing in. I have another guy out of Germany that brought in some anthuriums out of Germany. And they're selling for fifteen hundred dollars each, and I had a hundred of them in the quarantine tunnel over Christmas. That's a bit of pressure, Clive. <laughs> yeah, I wish he hadn't told me that was one hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of stock sitting there. It was scary. Um, wow, that must just, be really a great challenge horticulturally to really know you have to understand these plants and watch them very closely and, and give well, them. Even what at they the need. moment, I've got two lots of succulents. One, he wants all the roof open all day to get the bright colours in, so he can sell them. The other one just came in last week and she wants the roof closed so the humidity stays up while they establish themselves. And in the same area, we can have Nepenthes, we can have Hoyas, we can have Philodendrons, we have Irises, and we have um, Alocasias and we have Succulents, all within oh, two metres of each other. Trying to manage all these different plants, that are, to give you an idea of how hard it is, the plants, they, they come out of wherever they're coming out. The first thing they take them out, they bare root, wash all the soil off them. So the poor plants are a bit stressed. They're generally coming out of the Northern Hemisphere where it's 30, 35 degrees, it's quite warm and humid. The first thing they do is they go in the hold of a plane, which drops down to two degrees. They come out of the plane, they put in a box and gas and methyl bromide for three hours at 34 degrees. Then they come out here and they get potted up into a tunnel and we're gonna try and keep them alive and grow them for three months. That's a reality television show right there, Clive. <laughs> it is, and it's, it's a real challenge sometimes. And, Survivor. Yeah. Survivor. But it's and I'm seeing so much amazing stuff come through. It's just incredible.
Wow, what a what a gig! What a, I mean, did you ever imagine you've been doing that for such a long time for yourselves? You know, did you ever imagine that that would be what your business would evolve into? No, and we've just built our second quarantine tunnel, and we haven't even put any plants in it. It's booked out, and we're about to build the third one, and it's half booked out. Goodness me! It, 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 and I love it, and my head propagator, he's loving it because he's a plant buff. He loves, but he loves to see all these weird plants coming through. And every year, the two Bainoris breeders, the one in Wagga, which is Riversdale, and um, one over in um, Adelaide, bring their irises through. They come from the same people in America, and it's their breeding stuff. And it's fascinating watching all that happen. And four or five years later, you see them come out to the public. It's, mm. Uh, mm. And I think, you, you know, you touch on such an important thing, and it's something that I'm sure that most of the 3CR community are fairly aware of. But I think a lot of maybe new people to plants, people are getting newly obsessed. They don't understand those biosecurity risks of all of the plants coming in illegally. Um, they don't understand the, the problems that they potentially can cause. And I, I mean, I know even on Gardening Australia, we pulled a story down where I told people to sow seed out of their kitchen cupboard, mm. which is something that we've all done forever. Oh, mm. I want to sow some mustard or I need some coriander. I don't have any seed. But, you know, those biosecurity risks... Um, that now are seen as so much sharper um, for the wider industry. Some of the some of the diseases that could come in and could devastate a huge range of horticultural crops. Well, the, the interesting one is we've all been watching COVID for two years. Yeah, that's we ship plants all over the country, import and export. That's been our life for thirty years. The mm. quarantine, the biosecurity risk, managing it, and unfortunately, what the government bureaucrats don't understand is that biosecurity is a joint effort. It's, it's not someone with a big stick at the border hitting people to do the wrong thing. It's trying to make it so we all get in behind it and we all do the right thing and we all understand it. Mm. Um, and it's very important to make sure that we all understand it's important because there are people overseas that will lie and ship plants here with wrong names on them and we need to stop that. We need to teach the public that that's important. You're we so right, Clive, about like people need to understand. I mean, when we got the first email from Biosecurity Australia telling us off, we mm. thought... Well, we're, we're the national horticultural talkers. If you haven't talked to us about this, how are we, you know, like if we don't know, I've been battling how them. does the nation know? I've been fighting them for 30 years to understand that they need to work with me and not stand there as a, an angry parent treating me as a naughty child. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Help, help me help you yes exactly i've got yeah. far greater knowledge of the plants than they have so they want me on their side and i don't want diseases because western flowers has made my life difficult yeah mm. in mm. fact every time yeah. you get a new disease it's an in thing isn't it it's um i mean I'd love, like a... I'd love to get you guys out here with a camera just showing you how it's all done and even follow a plant from the time it leaves overseas to the time it finally gets out to the public yeah, yeah. I know we, we were all set to film um, a, a story again at, at the post-entry quarantine facility and then COVID got us yeah, again. Like, I can't tell you how much, uh, yeah. But not much you, goes through them anymore. Australia, you can see one-eighth of the work that's been done this yeah. year that's fallen over, as in everyone else. But, um, but very yeah, little goes crazy. through the government one now because they don't... Yeah, right. They only handled the high-risk stuff and very limited numbers. Like, we want to bring Citrus. some hops plants in. And they're two years in quarantine at two and a half thousand dollars a plant because they've got to go through the Micklin facility. We handle all the medium risk stuff. That's what oh, we do. Interesting. And the government directs them towards us because we're the only people that are doing it. 
Ah, oh, Clive, that's a that's a complex but really fascinating gig. Keep that horticultural brain firing. <laughs> it is, it is, and look, look, we, I can't say it. we we have a ball doing it. It's interesting. It is a challenge. We had we had some disease stuff come in last year on Christmas Eve. I just come out of hospital having my knee operated on, and we had to go and dump it all in the bin. And we had a big row with the quarantine people how we had to manage it. And everybody else stuck there got held back three months to check it. But we, we got a disease that we didn't have in Australia. We picked it up and we stopped it spreading. Wow. Well um, done. It does work. It's mm. it's a balance. Mm. Mm, I, really I, I should say, Clive, first of all, I have one of your hot plants and it's amazing. <laughs> what I love most about it is it pops up in spring goes absolutely crazy growing over everything. It's really sticky, so it grows on anything. It doesn't matter that it gets out of control because come late autumn into winter, it dies down again. They are really governed by the, by the sun, yep. the seasons. They, they, start, they start coming straight out of winter and they grow until the spring equinox. They start putting on the lateral zone between the spring, spring equinox and the summer solstice. Between the summer solstice and the autumn equinox, they start putting on the hops. Mm. And they really are governed by the sun, which is amazing. They are fascinating plants, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, yeah, my garden's not... being slowly taken over by them. <laughs> yeah, uh, I planted the golden leaf top in my garden at Macedon, and I have it growing up, uh, believe it or not, a bright blue painted um, uh, indoor pot stand, you know, for for. And I've got no pots. taste. <laughs> uh, it, it looks fantastic and I mean they, they came out of the ground only probably six weeks ago and they're already at the top of this pot stand that's about well in the old measurements a good eight feet tall uh, and against the blue paint of the of the structure the golden leaves of the hop look absolutely gorgeous and I think that is great taste personally Clive <laughs> yeah, they are they're, they're such an interesting Plant. It's, I'm interested that you're bringing more in, Clive, because it's I, I've, the first hop plant that I planted was when I was studying horticulture and living in Gippsland. I was at TAFE and I went to the local homebrew shop because me and my, my landlord, I lived on this property, an old Englishman wanted to grow our own hops because we used to do homebrewing together. <laughs> and I bought a rhizome from a guy called Stuart Ferguson in Tassie and it came dormant in winter in wet cotton wool in the post, you know. And, and this fella, I, for years I bought a few different cultivars from him and he had a really interesting collection and literally got his phone number through the homebrew shop. And then years later I couldn't find him again and it turned out that the Hot Growers Australia, the, the big business, had bought his whole collection out of retirement and, and now, you know, they hold most of the hop growing in Australia, I think, they, in, they, in the tobacco regions and in Tassie. They do hold it. Yeah. Um, I spent five years collecting. We've got about 25 different cultivars. And when I started, you're paying between $70 and $100 per rhizome. We've now got it down so they retail for about $25 each. Amazing. And, um, huge range of them. And we, we worked out all the beer components, the bitters and the alphas and everything. But in 2016, my wife and I actually took a holiday, not a worker's holiday, on a, one of those cruises in Europe. Well, you and, drink the beer, not just look at the Well, plant. one of the stops was we could either go to the BMW factory or the hops farm. And as soon as we started growing hops, I didn't have a choice. My wife said, we're going to the hops farm. I want to go to the BMW. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing because they had a hops ambassador and she took the whole group all through the farm and every, they plant the hops, the dormant hops shoot away in spring and they pick three shoots out of the 20 that come up and they run them up copper wire and... 
at the end of the season, they cut the whole lot down, including the copper wire, put it through this giant machine that chops them all up, spits out the heads, and the copper wire and the macerated hops go back in the ground as a fertiliser. Mm. Goodness. Absolutely wow. amazing. And when they put in about 15 new shoots, they take three, but the other ones they harvest until it was hops asparagus. Yes, you and can eat the stems. If you look at a young hop mm. shoot, it looks just like an asparagus mm. shoot, but they pickle them in a little jar and call it hops asparagus. Mm. They eat them. Oh, my yeah. goodness. I've got an incredible asparagus bed that's going off its head right now, and I can have even more. I can have hops asparagus. You know, there's mm. lots of other plants that you can do things like that with. I have actually one here, and it's a fern that you can eat the young croziers of. Um, it used to be called Matukia struthioides. It's now on Clonia, I think, something like that. I think I've got it on the label. Um, the shuttlecock fern. I'm not clear. I, found, uh, <laughs> I have tried the hops asparagus because I've been obsessed with hops as yeah. you have, Clive, for well, my whole, whole horticultural career. I think that's probably one of the plants that really started it off for me. But um, I, I wouldn't say I thought they were very palatable but i wonder if even between the cultivars there are diff there's different palatability because it is i mean it, people who you know will be familiar it, it is related to marijuana it's it's a very resinous sort but of they do it these are harvested before they break the soil before they break the soil yeah right that's where i went wrong they're, they're yeah. just little white tips that are just yep. touching the soil and they break them off then ah, so, okay that's great really tiny little things Stephen, we... is that definitely an edible fern? Oh, yes, yes, it is definitely an edible fern. In fact, I sold a whole pile of plants of it two years ago, or maybe three, I lose track of time, uh, to a grower somewhere over near Sylvan who grows boutique uh, edibles for the high-end restaurants. Um, of course, the high-end restaurants haven't been doing terribly well of late because they've been closed most of the time. Um, but yes, so the shuttlecock fern, you pick the little croziers when they're just starting to uncurl and apparently you just lightly steam them. I haven't tried them yet. Uh, but yes, all of the all of the um, literature I've been able to find all talk about the shuttlecock fern being edible. Um, there's, there's a number of species that I know are eaten in New Zealand, yep. the fiddleheads and, and quite a few, and then some that need some treatment before eating, you know, much like a uh, warrigal green or something like that, that different sort of properties that are, yeah. you need to blanch and, and steam. But I wonder uh, wonder about that one. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. I haven't tried the Anoclea. Mm. As you know, we do the Edel Renaissance range. We also have a huge fern collection now. We do about 40 different ferns. So I have to find someone that can give me um, little plant plugs of that one to put in my range as an edible fern. Well, unfortunately, I don't know anybody who's doing it. I actually imported it years ago from Great Dixter Garden in England, um, and I still haven't found any other grower doing the shuttlecock fern at this stage. I'm uh, sure Clive was dropping a bit of a hint. There. Well, he might be, <laughs> but I, I certainly don't have the facilities to grow plugs, so I can't do it in quantity for you, Clive, but uh, I could start you off with a plant or two. <laughs> I'll have a chat to my friend down in Tassie. Not, we've got Michael Barrett at the Bichino. But you've got the other amazing lady, and I think Gardening Australia has been to see it, the uh, American lady at Tassie Ferns yeah. on, just off of Hobart. Mm. Another crazy woman, really <laughs> great, amazing well, stuff. And her that's what keeps horticulture going, is crazy people, isn't it, Clive? 
It is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> no money in it. <laughs> yeah, so anyhow, so yes, yeah, so Anoclea is another edible plant, and I've had quite a number of people ask me for it uh, in recent times because like indoor plants, edible plants, there's a certain genre of people. It doesn't matter whether you get one berry every 10 years, but if it's edible, they'll buy it and grow it. I actually sold a high-altitude Bolivian coconut palm to a guy who's... Oh, I want one. I want one. <laughs> he's, he's trying to grow edibles, uh, but he's obviously a well-heeled edible grower and not one of these people who's trying to do it uh, on a shoestring. They'll take eight years to start getting little tiny coconuts on them, uh, but they are edible and they taste just like ordinary coconut, except they're about the size of a golf ball. Whoa. Um, oh, and they're a beautiful palm, but I sell them for seven or $800 a plant. I don't want that. Yeah. Yes, you do, Clive. Clive's hand suddenly went down. (laughs) (laughs) But they're cold hardy, so uh, we can grow them around our area. Um, You say that, Stephen. There's a lot of stuff we grow out of South America, Bolivia, high altitude Bolivia, that grows so well in the Yarra Valley. Mm -hmm. It's the perfect climate for it. It's sort of subtropical because of its latitude, but it's cold tolerant and it likes our weather down here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, so you should be growing Bolivian mountain coconuts. <laughs> I will. I will. Hey guys, I'll just take this um, opportunity to say everyone you're listening to the three CR gardening show. I'm A B Bishop and Stephen Ryan is here in the studio hosting the show yes. and with us via Zoom are Millie Ross from ABC Gardening Australia and Clive Larkman from Larkman Nurseries. Um please we are Open for business, so to speak. So if you want to uh, ring in with a question, uh, you won't go live to air, but Emma will pop the question through and we can answer it. Uh, so the phone number for that is 94190155 if you have a question, or you can text it through to 0488 809855. So um, please feel free to um, come on and ask a question or give a comment or anything you like. So yeah. Clive's, just engage with us. Just engage, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. The, out, the, out, the outside world, we're really looking forward to engaging <laughs> with you. Um, look, Clive, someone has sent a text in. This is specific for you. Um, hi, Clive. I read your article in the Hort Journal on Salvia um, Apiana. Yeah, yep, white the sage. white sage. Uh, we have been offered cuttings for the Californian Central and South American garden at the Melton Botanic Garden. Could you please advise on weediness or potential weediness, especially in the dry west of Melbourne? That's from John Bentley from the Botanic Gardens. It's one of the hardest salvias to grow. It is. Um, I don't think anywhere in Victoria is dry enough to, for it to become a weed, other than maybe up in the Mallee. Um, it's, it's more likely to die than grow. Yeah. So John shouldn't have a problem with it then. And, and they, the, 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 the alternative people love it for their smoking ceremonies. Yeah. So, and we've just ordered seed from America of an even drier tolerant one, one that comes from around San Diego where I used to live, which lives on about five mil of rain a year. Goodness me. It's bright. Five, is, when you say alternative people, do you mean, is that like the sort of traditional smudge salvia? Yes. Yep. Ah. That, that's the one. That's what yeah. that's it. Oh, interesting. Um, and when we have it at garden shows, it sells out very quickly. So I don't think you've got a weed issue. Um, we bought some seed in from Europe this time. And the first time we've had a good germination and it's around about 60% germination in pretty good conditions. There you go. Right. Well, good to know. All right. Another thing we've been working with is um, a guy north of Melbourne or east of the, west of the Gambie who's got 30,000 
pine nut trees. <laughs> Goodness me. And not me. the pine nuts we have here. They come out of China, which is a different species than the traditional Turkish yeah. one. So he's given us permission to, to fell 300 of these little trees. So we've got them coming through soon. And he's trying to build an industry out of pine nuts. Best yeah. of luck with that with cockatoos. Yeah. <laughs> That's what everybody said to him, but he hasn't had a problem yet. Uh, they haven't they discovered them. Yeah, yeah, they haven't found him yet. I mean, the Pinus radiatus around our area are now having their pine cones shredded by the yellow-tailed black cockatoos. Um, yes, and... you know, our cars live under one. <laughs> oh, yes, well, there you go. Uh, you know all about it then, Clive. And, uh, yes, they've decided that there's a very good food source in those exotic trees, and uh, they're doing a good job of controlling Pinus radiata, I think, in our area. Oh, it's really interesting in west australia with the the carnaby's cockatoo which is an endangered species they are there's a lot of debate about the harvesting of the pine plantations which are now at maturity because the loss of habitat has meant mm. the cockatoos are really now they rely on that pine habitat as a food source All right. and mm. and you know this one the natural natural food sources are gone they've grown this unnatural one and now they want to cut that down because it's a harvestable forest. And it is such an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, we all know animals and plants, they're, they're similar. They're smart and they know how to, to work out how to adjust and adapt and, and survive. But um, my, my field of study at university is evolution and speciation and how plants and animals move around the world. And unfortunately, we look at, at in a, a human lifetime if we looked at, see, to me, Western um, myrtle rust is the best thing for the Australian environment long term. Our environment for 10,000, 20,000 years has been dominated by one genus of plants, or one group of plants, the Myrtaceae. That doesn't happen in the world in nature. Anything that dominates the environment for that long eventually has a pest evolve that puts it back into perspective. And in 500 years' time, the Myrtaceae will be less dominant and you'll have a bigger mix of um, all the other type Proteaceae and Myrtaceae and all the other different uh, families of plants. So we need to look at things in a much, much, much longer time span than our short lifespan. Mm. No wonder biosecurity get the whoopsies when they're talking to you. <laughs> 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 I imagine that you saying that to someone would have um, oh. directed right out. But I mean, it's, it's so true, isn't it? And it's like just, just in that moment of talking about Stephen, that there's a certain group of gardeners who are just obsessed with things that you can eat. Yes. And, you know, I was having a chat with, with you know, my friend Clarence, he's a Bundjalung guy, and we were talking about bush foods and that real interest and a lot of the issues around the intellectual property of First Nations people actually, you know, holding that knowledge and being able to be the owners of that knowledge and all of those issues. And he said to me, you know, it's so funny, just people want to eat, you know, some things, I don't know why you would eat it. Like you say, so mm. you're going to get one berry, but it's so focused on some people's obsession with their garden is so focused on their their mm. results that they get from it i think sometimes it could be and then you, a little bit limiting yes we use the word edible and eatable yes Yes, there's a difference between edibility and palatability in mm. some cases mm. too i've started Absolutely. growing uh, tropical blueberries um which aren't strictly blueberries, but plants in the Ericaceae family that produce edible berries like a blueberry. And mm. they come from all around the tropics. From uh, uh, I've got one from Costa Rica. I've got two from New Guinea. I've got one from far north Queensland. I've got several from the Himalayas. Um, and there, there's a number of genera involved. Uh, but they all get edible berries. But 
they're not all that exciting in fruit, but I can sell those plants now because I've got an edible, edibility about them. And the people will buy them and they won't even look at the fact that they've got stunningly beautiful foliage and really interesting flowers. Mm. It's yeah. just about the fact that they can eat it. <laughs> yeah. I, there's a double down on that as well with, with I think, the last couple of years of, of people really sort of spinning towards kind of trying to grow their own food and mm. trying to feel a little bit more in control and secure in their own um, existence. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've stuck plenty of things in my mouth that are <laughs> the, 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 the hottest thing right now and I'm like, nope. Yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I remember being adventurous in my vegetable garden once, and I planted a whole pile of um, chrysanthemum greens, and I thought it tasted like mortine. <laughs> so, well, and, I mean, and that's true, isn't it? Like that's a, that's a that's a often used in Chinese yeah. um, cuisines, and you know, I, I mean, I remember being in um, Cambodia, I think, and eating a bowl of soup, and on the table was this huge bowl of not fresh herbs it was literally tree tips there were syzygiums in there i think yeah there was all of these that you put into your your soup and, and the flavors were really really huge and they were unfamiliar to me and i just think there are so many flavors that perhaps we could be eating but we're not really that good at them yet because we're yeah. not used to them we don't want to die collecting and finding all these new plants and putting them out there because it's fascinating but we had a funny one Di doesn't do chilies, my wife, yeah. but she does the mustards and the wasabis and the peppers. And we're at our, our daughter-in-law's family's house in Nagano, and there's a lovely little bush out there. And they said, oh, that's a really good bush. It's got a really very strong peppery mustard flavour. So Di went and pulled some berries and ate them. But she didn't wait for them to say, but you don't eat them because it makes your whole throat swell up. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> oh, dear. Whole mouth. <laughs> and she went in a real panic. <laughs> Did you have a quiet time with Di for a day or two, did you think, Clive? <laughs> oh, for an hour. <laughs> uh, and I remember as a kid, we were, um, that was when Datura was all arrived. Everyone was talking about that. Mm. And someone saw the white spass. They thought it was the same one, so they ate it. They said it was like chewing a mouthful of needles. Ooh. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I wouldn't eat Datura that, that, either. That's, I mean, if you want to, they've done that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I, I actually remember when I was a horticultural student, I did a sort of similar stupid thing. We were in a greenhouse somewhere at some big grower's place. I don't even remember who it was now, but they cut all of their dumb canes off for propagating material. So there was all these stumps sitting there in the greenhouse and they all had sap sitting on the top of the stumps. And without thinking, I stuck my finger in the sap and put it in my mouth. Oh, oh and I now know why they're called dumb canes. <laughs> <laughs> it was the dumbest thing I think I've ever done. It took it took ages for my mouth to go back to normal, but oh, there you go. Not good. Hey, guys, look, um, we are being engaged with from oh, the good. outside so world, so that's yeah. lovely. Tony's Texan. Um, sorry to keep you waiting, Tony. Um, hi, everyone. What can I treat or do with my tomato seedlings that are showing signs of mildew? They're about six weeks old. Mm. All right. Put a, fa put a fan on them. Get some air around them and put a roof on them so they don't get any more water. Sunshine. They need sunshine and no more water and lots of air. Mm. I would uh, I would move if, if it's not you know if you're not removing all the leaves. Although tomato seedlings are almost weeds, aren't they? Yeah, they In are. In the right moment, um, I'd remove most of the affected foliage too to try and just get it out of there. Yeah, sounds Look, good. I, someone had a debate a talk I was giving on whether you should take the laterals off the tomatoes or leave them on there. And I said, look, it's like this. The tomato plant is a weed. 
all it wants to do is grow. If you give it sunlight, water, and food, it will grow and produce fruit. There's nothing you can do to stop it doing that short of killing it. That's what I often say to Clive. Tomatoes were making tomatoes before we got involved. So <laughs> yeah. if you forget or if you so don't true. have time or, you know, if you don't ha- know what to do, just, just stick with it. You know, they want to live, they want to do their thing. If you've got a mould, you know, the tomato plants are sick because it's too humid, if you can just keep them alive until it dries out, they'll grow out of all that really, really quickly mm. and they'll put lots of new growth on. Mm. They're, 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 they are a tough, tough plant. Yeah, just the start of the season, Tony, so you're right. Yeah, all right, good. Yeah, okay, next. Marie, thanks, Marie, for waiting for your answer. Hi, good to hear you all. What should I fertilise my native limes with? They are small in pots and have some branches dying off. Mm. Definitely a uh, either a native fertiliser or a citrus fertiliser is fine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they come from that incredible volcanic soil sort of kind of inland Byron Bay in you know they come from a very kind of fertile place in a way so I think you know park the park the native thing yeah just think of them as citrus, citrus. yeah and maybe wanting a little bit more shelter than a lot of citrus when aren't there three or four different different completely different species of native lime that's yeah. true I could yeah I could there's desert there's desert there, lime but um yeah. yeah I'm thinking maybe she might be talking about the the finger lines which are the more, I suppose, traditional. I would just known be a little ones. wary of the phosphorus, and I'd, I'd keep. I'd be doing a, a high nitrogen, high potassium fertilizer, and wait for some sun. Yeah, and don't worry about the leafless branches. That is really a thing with the native limes, with the finger limes. Mm. Um, at the nursery, I work at Karanga Nursery, and half the time the the branches don't have leaves, and then they grow back again, and then they disappear. At first, I was like, oh, is this the the larvae of the dainty swallowtail butterfly eating them all? But it's not. They, I don't know. They just seem to go through these phases where they don't have leaves, and then the leaves grow back. So the the branches aren't necessarily dying off. They they're perfectly healthy still, and they still produce lots of fruit. So, mm. uh, but I yeah, would I make. They are one of those plants that you kind of just need to find the right spot for, don't you? Like yeah. they, they do. I've seen them growing in full sun. I've seen them growing in quite shady spots and, yeah. and cropping quite well. But yeah, um, you know, good, well drained, you know, good quality potting mix if it's in a container. Yeah. Um, and and then just kind of maybe sh- you know in a container you've got that that beauty of being able to shuffle it around to find a really good spot for it. Yeah. Um, for its environmental conditions. Yeah. Because yeah. you've got to remember we're in southern Australia, which is a quite different environment to where they come from. So mm. you've just got to find the right microclimate. Exactly. exactly. And, I mean, a lot of people do really well. I've got them. I've got a, a few. And I know lots of people who grow them really well in Melbourne. Mine are in pots. And, yeah, they're, they're fantastic. So I think maybe maybe pot them up, Marie, if you haven't done so for a while. And, yeah, as Millie said, just move them around and Amy, find the mi- right microclimate. Whether that leaf drop is any relation to fruit set? I haven't noticed. It, I mean, it is quite possible, I suppose. They they are in flower at the moment. There's a reason for it. And my, my lime hasn't had fruit, but it's never dropped its leaves. It's always been vigorous and healthy growing. Oh, is, is yours a grafted one or seed grown? Grafted, I think. Grafted, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Mm, you might have to change your microclimate, Clive. <laughs> 
<laughs> not your, not your personal <laughs> microclimate. <laughs> All right. Yes, go and get some sun. Clive. Yeah, exactly. All right. uh, <laughs> no uh, more rain. Stephen, this might be a question for you. I'm not sure, right, but yeah. uh, let's see. Uh, Paul from Abbotsford, can you tell me about hardy South African summer flowering bulbs, recommendations, and where I'd get them? Oh, uh, <laughs> there's not terribly many people growing South African bulbs these days. Um, so where you'd get them from might be a little bit difficult. Um, I wonder if Jane Tonkin's growing them. She growing does them. more sort of Northern Hemisphere okay. stuff. Yep. She may have some, but I'd be surprised if she's got terribly much on offer. Um, uh, Gary Reed would have been the obvious choice up at Allen's Flat, but he's basically now semi-retired. Um, and I have to say most of the really showy South African bulbs do tend to be winter-growing, spring-flowering bulbs except for some of the gladioli species um so there i think summer flowering bulbs except for gladioli and except for rhoda hypoxis which we talked about earlier which isn't strictly a bulb but is a summer growing bulbous plant um uh, there's not that much to to choose from i mean you then go into plants that aren't strictly bulbous like agapanthuses and uh, um, and what uh, uh, nephophias and things like that which aren't really truly bulbous. Uh, and those are the sort of things you'd get through most of the perennial growers more so than bulb growers. So I'm not quite sure what particular South African bulbs you're thinking about, uh, but I'm not sure that there are really suppliers out there where you can get these sort of things. Um, so I don't know that I can be much help. Or maybe even ring up a couple of the specialist bulb growers and, and they might be able to put yeah, you onto yeah, someone. Yeah, well, certainly I would get in touch with Jane Tonkin because Jane's uh, you know a serious bulb grower and knows her stuff, so she may well have contacts. <laughs> so there you go. All right. So Michael, uh, thanks, Stephen. Michael from Forest Hill would like to know any other solution rather than bait and beer for limiting the snail population? Tap dancing's good. <laughs> have you tried that, have you? Yeah, yeah. over the neighbour's fence. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah they take a while to crawl back. I recently read some research that said that, um, that they did in the UK, though, it said that one in five gardeners has done that, just get over the neighbour's fence, but also that they can usually find their way back from about 20 metres. Yeah. They do so, kind of um, find their way back. I, yeah, I think snails chickens. are such a, so bad at the moment. What was that, Clive? Chickens don't mind them and ducks. Mm. Depends on the chicken. But, but <laughs> also, um, when you don't want to use bait, that, that high iron bait, it doesn't do any damage to anything but the snails. Mm. Well, it... that's, I would say a slight caution there, Clive, that for animals like dogs, you do still need to be cautious about it because it is, if they get the whole box, it is oh, yeah. problematic. But And also there's a new, I think it's actually the same sort of product, um, OCP have released a mm. new organic snail bait, which is, again, um, one of the iron-based yeah. Yeah. treatments. But, yeah, I mean, collecting them, getting out there when it's pouring they and when it's wet, they turn up and at mm. night. So even just going out and doing a little bit of a clean-up, cleaning up any upturned pots, have a look behind garden edges, um, you know, under leaves, just actually trying to reduce the population a little bit, I think, can mm. be quite helpful. Mm. Um, and the one other little trick, I, I just was in someone's garden the other day and, you know, really quite an extensive vegetable garden and just around the strawberry plat patch, um, just around the small area of strawberries was a sand mulch. And I looked at it and I thought, gosh, that's so, so straightforward, so simple. And Marilyn said, oh, yeah, the snails don't go over it. So, I just, you know, it was only an area of about a metre square. She's, she's a propagator, so she has quite a bit of sand on hand. But just as a really simple thing around those, 
particularly precious plants that you know the snails are going to eat your strawberries before you do. Just before um, you go ahead, Simple really, way to go. Um, that's not bricky sand, is it? Uh, it would have been probably just a wash sand, yeah, so because, quite a coarse sand. But yeah. again, just, you know, like people do the eggshell thing. I think yeah. coffee grounds has been disproven. A lot of those things don't necessarily work that well. I mean, you can use copper as well, Clive, but mm. someone said to me the other day that they put copper tape, and I'm like, my, how do I put copper tape around a, you know, a, a 30 metre square garden? <laughs> um, but those things can work. Yeah, yeah, good one. Okay, Sharon uh, wants to know, please, is cypress pine toxic to use as a mulch? I'd use it. We use it. Yeah. Can I... Can I, uh, can Millie's I waving a piece of timber. At some point? This, is my, this is my topic for the day. Excellent. Um, yeah, I went, so that's, that's a really interesting question. Cypress pine is, is just a timber like any other. Um, but, yeah, I wanted to talk about timber today. I said to Stephen that something that is incredibly important to me and interesting to me as a gardener, it's something I've been um, looking at for a long time and as a landscaper um, certainly has always been interesting. But um, having been through this renovation and pulled 110-year-old timber out of walls um, that is stronger than steel, uh, and it just really highlighted to me... Uh, the value of this resource of timber. And cypress pine is such an interesting thing. I often think with timber people I know, and, and I think they're starting to kind of become more planty um, in that those common names that are applied to timber can be just as confusing as common names that are applied to plants Ooh, in a garden context. Mm. Um, and cypress pine is one of them. So cypress pine can uh, be, often it is referring to this plant, this timber, this timber that I have in my hand, which is an old picket fence. I thought you were going to smash your computer with it when we couldn't go to air. I thought, no, oh, I'm Millie's like, I'm holding trouble. an old picket. But this is, um, you know, this is how much I value timber. I saw some pieces of a picket fence on the side of the road and I pulled over and threw them on the back of my ute because when I ran the plane over the top of it, I realised that this is native cypress pine. It's colitris. It's a species of colitris. There's a number that are used. And they are like, you know, really harsh country timbers. They come from like sort of western New South Wales. And, you know, harsh conditions means often very hard, long-lasting timbers. Mm. And I think this stuff is incredibly precious. And often it's, you know, you can buy one of these, you can buy a native cypress pine picket for $3 at any hardware store. You can buy huge posts. It's a fantastic timbering ground. But it is... I think it's a bit overused in a way, and I don't want to get into the politics of forestry, Clive. I'm sure that you probably have some thoughts on this too in this country. But, um, you know, for me, it's just about recognising that all these timbers are very valuable and we shouldn't be using them and chucking them in the bin and using them and chucking them in the bin and using them and chucking them in the bin. We should use them well and use them once. And so when, when you talk about cypress pine mulch, I think what people are probably not talking about is this colitris cypress pine they're probably talking about macrocarpa mm, which probably. is an introduced species which is also called golden cypress i think it's called uh, sometimes that's the that's the braniana form yeah so golden cypress tim well but when you're talking about timber i guess is is what i'm yeah. um it's, saying it's macrocarpa, that, yeah yeah macrocarpa is the species name it's had a name change from capressus macrocarpa to hesperocyparis yeah, it's another one of those I name think. changes, yes. Yeah, Monterey cypress, but often sold as golden cypress, as cypress pine timber. You'll find a lot of people are now selling it as sleepers. Um, and what that is, is often coming from salvage trees, from farm windbreaks, 
um, that are coming down, being being milled by some of the reclaimed timber places and some of the different people. So there's actually really different um, timbers and they have very different applications in the garden. Both would be fine as mulch because really it's just mulch. It's just sitting on top of the soil doing the job. But when it comes to those timbers in the garden, it's, it's actually, you use them very differently and they are being sourced from different places. So well, cypress guess, time should only refer to macrocarpa because colitis is not a cypress. No, well, exactly. But it's but you'll find that native pine, native cypress pine, mm. white pine, these are all names that it's sold mm. under as a plant, but also more importantly as a timber where it is used incredibly wide range. You know, like most, most big box hardware stores, you can walk in mm. and there will be a huge range of colitis timber for sale. It is incredibly durable. I think it's class two, but it can be used in ground and it'll last for sort of 15, 20 years. Whereas macrocarpa in ground, you're probably only going to get five to eight years out of it. Above ground, really, really resilient. Great for making gates. It's used mm. as cladding in New Zealand. It's used for weatherboards and shingles and all sorts of things. So it's for me, it's just really another fascinating kind of avenue of obsession for plants, really. With the, the question, though, I think... The issue that that question is coming from using the foliage as a mulch, which is, where, which is why people have the question, because the foliage will suppress growth of new plants. It won't stop the growth of the plants that are already there. So if a plant's there with its roots in the ground, using the foliage as a mulch is good as a weed suppressant, but you won't be able to put shallow, shallow rooted plants or new plants there because the cypress, the pines, like most pines, have toxins in the foliage. Alelia. Aleliopathy. <laughs> yeah. Well done for a Sunday morning. Like when you're thinking about using the foliage and putting it through the mulcher and it's mixed up with the, you know, maybe it's mixed up with the timber or, or the chips. Not like, long. Not long before those those actual compounds start to break down. Yeah, pretty quickly. The reason why they do so well under a pine tree is that you, they just have every year constantly non-stop new foliage dropping down and it, it forms a map. It's very hard for anything to sow sodium. We grow under our pine tree. We grow monsteras and pelargoniums and um, tucrums under there, and they're loving it because the, 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 way, the way the ground's now changed itself. But if a human being did what a pine tree did to the ground underneath it, we'd go to jail for poisoning. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I have this great belief, I have to say, when it comes to mulches, uh, I waste nothing. And so I shred everything that I can shred and it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, it goes through the shredder and it becomes mulch. Um, I stalk those guys around that cut things back from the power lines and what have you and get truckloads from them on a regular basis. I've also got a, a fairly tame tree surgeon that'll bring me a truckload of mulch whenever I ask him for one. And uh, as long as it's going on the surface, I don't actually care too much what the components are. It could be any mm. sort of tree and it often is. Um, you know, you, you, if you go through it, you'll find bits of wattle or you might find bits of oak. You'll find all sorts of stuff in there. And uh, I figure the more diversity, actually, the better your soil is mm. in the long term. So if That's very true. Mm. Yeah, so yeah I go. think it's really true, Stephen. And I, I often people are worried about, um, about disease being mm. transferred, you know, from, from woody mulch if they just get anything and how do I know what's in it. But... I mean, I'd be interested to hear if anyone had had an experience where that had happened. Um, but, it, yeah, that, I often think about this even when there's the proactive, um, you know, like people will sell products with a biological boost for your soil or those mm. sorts of things. Oh, it contains all these microorganisms. And I think, yeah, but 
when they hit my garden, how do I know that I have the conditions for those microorganisms to flourish? Yeah. And so the risk of actually putting a woody mulch with something wrong that's going to attack your plant community or the conditions are going to be right for that problem to thrive is, is so low that really a, a mixed woody mulch is, is just such, you it's know, there's safe. a lot of diversity in there already to yeah. keep things in control. And remember, anything that comes in that woody mulch has to fight what's already in your ground and it's strong and it's established. The only time you have a worry is if you put it on virgin clay and it's, there's nothing else there so it's sterile, then you might have a problem. But the, many years ago on council, we um, put a recycling thing in and we had to close it because of the smell, but we bought truckloads of waste. And the public are pretty naughty. We got bike tyres, wheels, shoes. Yeah. The, the rubbish people put in at, at green waste is just criminal. Mm, mm. I know people are often complaining about getting plastic in the mulch. I'm like, yeah, that's because you put it in your green waste bin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, it's, oh, that's it. I, I think the, the biggest thing that I used to find, I used to get the council mulch occasionally, uh, and the thing that you'd find in it were those blasted black plastic <laughs> straws because nobody could see them, but you'd be putting it out on the garden bed and suddenly here's straws uh, showing up, and it used to drive me nuts. But, you know, if I'm getting my mulch through the sources I get it, you know it's just the tree shreddings yep. and there's no sort of extraneous <laughs> material and, in there. And as you say, Stephen, it's always worth pulling over and chatting to the arborists because sometimes you'll pay for, for mulch and that's fine, you know, for them to mm. come and drop it off. I used to get it for, for a, it, a slab. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if but if often they are, are working, and particularly, you know, after the storms we had this year, they they are working so hard that they actually need to empty their truck so they can keep working. Yeah. And it's it's quicker for them to dump it on your front porch than it is for them to drive back to their depot or to go to the tip and pay for it. So it, it's always worth having a chat and leaving your phone number and you might get, we've had, you know, random calls completely unexpected yeah. from someone I chatted two months before who's like, I'm in the area and I'm, you know, do you want to, do you want to load? Yeah. I'll be there in 10 minutes. Yeah. So, no, we have yeah, to pay for it in the Air Valley. Well, we, we had the power core people or whatever the contractors were way back when uh, who were working around our area at one stage. And I said, oh, look, I'll, I'll take some loads of mulch. And so they dropped one and then they dropped another and then they dropped another. <laughs> and I think they actually took it on as a challenge to see how many truckloads of, of mulch they could drop at my place before I said enough is enough. <laughs> I think it turned out to be 10. Whoa. And once I had 10 truckloads of mulch filling up the whole driveway, uh, I decided I couldn't deal with any more. And I said enough is enough, guys, but thank you. Yeah. We were the same. We, we had so much. It actually ended up turning to compost because we couldn't spread it yeah. quick enough. We had about 25 truck and trailer loads. <laughs> there you go. Oh, I wish I had space for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, you know, like in the Macedon Ranges post the storms, there's there's actually piles of mulch for the community in some places. But in our town, there's picture, there's there's stakes in there with little signs that say this is being monitored by CCTV. And I felt like popping up to the council office and looking and going, really? Yeah. Are you that mean? <laughs> you know, like people didn't have power for five days. Yes. They exactly. just got a bit of mulch to put on their garden. Just let them have it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that was well answered uh, question, guys. Yes, anyway, yes. Yes, moving right along. Moving right along. Okie dokie. Max, uh, Max would like to know, do you have any deterrence for stopping animals eating the rind of lemons? The tree is netted. Ugh. Well, I was going to say the only way to deal with it is probably netting, but there you go. Maybe get a finer netting. I have. Do you want to hear an old one? Yes, definitely. 
Well, years ago, years and years ago, had exactly that problem in the Pointons nursery in the house garden and um, mothballs were hung in the tree, just the old-fashioned mothballs. And I don't know what's in them or, I mean, they stink. And it actually, within a couple of days, they stopped. It was possums, so I don't know if that's... um, yeah, it could be possums or rats so could do just, it. Yeah, just deterred them, I think, that really strong scent. Um, I've heard similar things with blood and bone. Putting that around the base of a tree can actually be quite effective in stopping quite a few different animals. Um, and the other thing that can work quite well is you go down the op shop when they're open and you buy a couple of stuffed toys and you just pop them in the tree. And so sometimes that can be quite useful, like particularly ones with big eyes, you know, and you move them around every few days and that can also be quite effective just in disrupting their behaviour because they're, they're often kind of, they're feast or famine, you know. They kind of hit one target and then if you can deter them from that target at a particular time, they move on to something else. But there are a few things that I have, have used myself or seen work quite effectively. The toy tigers? <laughs> yes, you can get a tiger, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Panthers, yeah, black Yeah, because I don't think teddy bears Clive. are really scary enough. <laughs> Clive would have to quarantine the tiger, I think, for you in one of the poly houses first. Yeah. <laughs> Okie dokie. So this is Erin has uh, sent us a text saying, good morning, everyone. Just wanted to say, oh, what an interesting conversation you guys are having this morning. Thanks, Erin. I wanted to ask if Stephen has mm-hmm. any Cronus controversa variegata or wolf eye and if they can be posted to Sydney. All right. Uh, I haven't got any wolf eyes at the moment. I have got Controversa variegata, uh, but I would not post them out for two reasons. One is they're rather largish to go into post. And secondly, they're hideously expensive and I just wouldn't risk them in the mail. Um, So I have got some Controversa variegata. I've also got Alternifolia argentea, which is a similar uh, cornice with smaller leaves and still gets that lovely layered effect. Um, so they're at the nursery, but I certainly wouldn't mail them out, unfortunately. Is there anyone in Sydney or in the Blue Mountains maybe that would be growing them? Uh, the only place I could think of actually that he, uh, somebody could get them if they can get to Barrel. Um, Moidart Nursery at Barrel has both Controversa <laughs> variegata and Argentia um, Alternifolia Argentia. So well, they're not in lockdown, so they can drive down to Barrel. Yeah, mm. so they could go to Barrel. So that would be the other alternative because I know that uh, Graham at Moidart Nursery is grafting his own plants of both those cornices. But you'd have to take a big wallet because he's got a lot of other good stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that as well. Take the trailer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and don't take your spouse. I always find that's a nuisance when, you, when you're wanting to spend up big. Uh, but, yes, that's that would be the best bet. Take the wallet, not, not the, the spouse. spouse. Yes. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> All right, Clive. Plant at it. Clive, I think this one is um, pointed at you. Good morning, guys. Uh, This is Peter from Notting Hill. Many years ago, I purchased a Brighamia in Cygnus, Hawaiian palm. Mm -hmm. I didn't really look after it like I should have, so it died. That's honesty for you. I like it. Uh, I'd like to try again, but where can I get one? I still have the label, and it was released by Larkman Plants. It was. We did that. Um, We found a, a man out of Holland, fascinating man. He called himself the plant collector. And he travelled the world collecting really, 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 really rare plants. And he got this one called Brighami in Cygnus, which grows on the cliffs of Hawaii. And the pollinator is either extinct or doesn't not doing it anymore. So the plant became very endangered. He managed to produce enough seed to produce enough plants. And we bought a lot of seed off him, but it didn't have a long shelf life. There is a guy who works at the Botanic Gardens of Sid- in Sydney. 
who has managed to get the plant growing and every so often he sells them online, not cheap, but for a while up there. So that'll be about the only place you're going to be able to find anyone growing them at the moment. And that'll teach you for not growing it well in the first place. <laughs> yes, sometimes you have a lovely plant and if you don't look after it, you can't get another one. So Sometimes it worries because we do import a lot of plants over the last 30 years and we've lost a lot of those rare plants and they're only one or two in the country and it worries me when that happens. Yeah, because um, you're probably not going to be able to re-import them again in a lot of cases. So yeah, once we lose that botanical diversity, which actually is quite a good segue to remind people that there is an organisation called Plant Trust that registers collections um, and it's a very good move uh, if collections are registered with something like that so that we know where the plant material is if in fact uh, we need it for research or for propagating or breeding or whatever else you might want it for and plants come in and out of fashion and when they do go out of fashion and the nursery industry stops growing them it sometimes they just disappear altogether and cultivars yes. particularly can disappear and never come again because once a, a cultivar is gone it's gone for good um, and I mean we've got lots of Australian native plants for instance sake that many breeders have created and if they're no longer in fashion and they're not being grown by the trade if they haven't been exported overseas then they die out altogether and that's very sad mm. uh, and it also goes for exotic plants as well I mean over the years we've had quite a lot of collectors in this country that have grown exotic plants and have bred them uh, and so we've got Australian selected cultivars and a classic example of that would be canna lilies uh, there between the wards there was a gentleman called Mr Cole I don't know what his Christian name was but he was a canna breeder and there were a number of uh, his hybrids that were bred over the years and they were very well thought of some of them went into international but a lot of them stayed in Australia and never left but of course the labels disappear the names are lost the, some of his cannas may well still be out there but not under any name anymore nobody knows what it is and it's really and his, sad. his collection ended up in England yeah. And I've had someone who's already approached me in the quarantine to re-import the plants out of England. Fantastic. Back to the collection here. But the problem is because England is in Europe and Europe has xylella and they're a xylella host, they have to be put into 50-degree water for 45 oh, minutes. Oh, dear. Yes. Now, I believe if you did the canna at the right time, you do it the right way, you would be able to re-import it and it would survive the water treatment. Yeah, which would be fantastic because it would be lovely to get back some of the coal hybrids. I know the uh, Botanic Gardens up in Bendigo, which, who holds the National Canna Collection for Plant Trust, have a few of the old coal hybrids up there. But the other issue with cannas, of course, is that a lot of cannas in Australia are riddled with virus. So, um, and I know there's virus in the in the collection up at Bendigo because I've seen the evidence of it in some of their plants. Um, so, you know, once you've got virus in cannas, I mean, a lot of growers overseas stopped growing them altogether uh, because they couldn't quit the cannas of the virus. So they were they decided to go out of cannas, which is sad because I think they're fabulous plants. I love a good canna. Oh yeah, they're gorgeous. I've had a canna. I've had a canna. I've been carrying for twenty years. You know, every rental garden I've ever had. And I still have it and I shuffle it around every season because I need it in a different spot the yeah. next year. You know, I might want it to offer shelter to that new window or be some foliage on the on the back back fence. And the, the honey eaters absolutely knock each other over for them as yeah. well yep. and produce flowers for such a long time over summer. I just think they're such a valuable plant, plus loads of foliage to feed the compost. I mm. mean, 
what don't you want? Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, it does uh, it all, the yeah. old mannequin. And actually, when you think about it, there's not many herbaceous perennials that offer you such strong verticality, uh, yeah. such big and blousy flowers and such wonderful tropical-looking foliage. Mm. Uh, mm. I mean, they make a huge statement in any garden you plant a canner in. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they're just sort of unapologetically there, and I just mm. love them. I think they're great plants. Mm. And I think, I mean, there's certainly weed issues with some of the different species or probably just some of the different cultivars are much more readily seeding yeah. or, or where you're actually growing them. But I've, I've never found this to seed in my garden. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I do remove flowers as they fade just to encourage more. Um, but um, it is worth making a, a good choice for a variety if you're somewhere that you shouldn't be growing um, blousey plants. But certainly I think they're one that can be really easily controlled. Oh, yes. Um, and the other yeah, is a, a really interesting topic that just Don and I were talking about in the car yesterday about new plants and we, we all remember the, the trend in the late 90s early 2000s if it was new it sold mm. until yeah. finally the nursery and the public woke up and said a different shade of pink daisy who gives a toss yeah <laughs> you know, the breeder might think that's a different pink but mr and mrs smith don't care and <laughs> with the resurgence of gardening what i believe is happening i'm seeing it a bit is that people are going back to the gardens and they want the old shrub that mum and dad had 25 years ago in the quarter acre block. Yeah. And I think that's a great sign for our industry because they're the good old tried, tried and true hardy plants that give satisfaction to the consumer. And I have a friend in in, um, Amer in Holland that calls it the end consumer is something to look after. Yep. Good. We've got to good. go. Good. We do. <laughs> I actually didn't realise we how... Yes, how we're the almost time on. has gone really quickly. Um, I would like to really quickly say Jane Tonkin has um, messaged in to say that they've got um, summer and winter, all sorts of South African bulbs. Oh, so good. get on to Tonkin's bulbs. Hey, Millie and Clive, thank you so much for um, joining in with us in this really weird and <laughs> wacky time. Uh, thanks to Emma, uh, producer, and thanks so much to Greg um, for coming into the studio. Hopefully I'll be able to sign off okay. So until next Sunday. Bye-bye for now. Bye, everybody. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.